Hello and welcome to Teen West Covina, a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend podcast. I'm your host Paisley and today is Saturday, May 4th, 2019. This is episode 13 of the podcast and we're discussing the episode I'm Back at Camp with Josh, season 1, episode 10. Before we do that though, I have a couple different things to address. First, a big thank you to Stephen Mann for supporting the podcast by becoming a patron. I'd put a shout out in the last episode and then accidentally uploaded the wrong file, so I wanted to make sure and do that straight off. It really means a lot on both a practical level and a psychological level to have patrons contributing to my creative projects. That's huge. Thank you. Yes, the series is over. And if you guys want to hear what I thought of the finale, I made a wall of text post over on Reddit under my username, Team West Covina, but I'll put the link in the show notes. I thought about doing a hot take episode, but my thoughts and feelings always change as I process more, and I was busy creating a YouTube channel for this podcast and my unrelated side business, so it wasn't great timing. I continually posted live tweets during the season 4 episodes though, so you can also find those on my Twitter. The short response is that I was basically happy with the finale, even if I would have done a couple things differently. It's definitely something I can relate to at this time in my life single and doing public creative projects for one of the first times. I've always done creative projects, but the ones I've been doing since 2018 have kicked it up a notch. So yeah, I have a YouTube channel for the podcast now, if that's your medium of choice. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. I've got about half the episodes up at the moment, but the plan is to have them all up by mid-May. I'll also continue to have guests occasionally if there's a particular episode they want to discuss. Uh, There's a guest in the works for one of the more Jewish-centric episodes, so occasionally on and off we'll we'll try to do that. Since we're all going to be dying for new Crazy Ex-Girlfriend content now, I wanted to give a mention to a great podcast episode that some of the CXG assistant directors did. The podcast is called Below the Line, and season 2, episode 5 of that podcast is just called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And they provide us with a ton of behind-the-scenes stories that are pretty fresh and new, some of them I'd never heard before. They talk about the production from an entirely different perspective, often focused on the crew, and it's great. Their jobs are so incredibly hard and fast-paced, and they have to be unfailingly creative in bringing the idea people's visions to life. Here are a couple tidbits that they discussed. So they talked about filming at Raging Waters and how Skylar was pretty much the only cast member who had to partake in the water park, even though he didn't feel up to it with the water so cold and off-season. Vinny, on the other hand, was gung-ho and would have loved to go. They talked about Aline instituting dress-up Friday for the cast and crew, with different themes like Beach, Western, and Twins Day, where you dress like someone else on set. Whenever Rachel came up with a theme, it would be really bizarre and challenging, like dress as your inner self. Aline would award prizes. The writer's assistants all dressed up like different versions of Anne Hathaway once, and Alden Derrick did Les Mis Anne Hathaway. A bunch of the crew had worked together on True Blood already, so lots of connections there, since Michael McMillan, Tim, also came from True Blood, of course. The crew had this thing called the Toad of Shame, which was literally laminated roadkill because the toad was already flat. Anytime somebody had a fail of some kind, they get the Toad of Shame. They used it kind of like a dunce cap. Then there was a contest for who had the most toads that year. The most toads they'd ever given out in one day was 16. 
They talked about how things like this were actually good for morale and kept people laughing, kept their spirits up during the long days. They also mentioned that the boom operator who comes into the shot with Deborah in the season four theme song was their real boom operator. That wasn't scripted initially, but spontaneous. Rachel just pulled him in. This whole podcast is on more behind-the-scenes aspects, and they cover lots of different projects, so I couldn't help think about what it must have been like for listeners who know nothing about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The assistant directors kept mentioning the cactus costume, or the sperm costume, or the turkey bra costume. Hopefully people start watching the show out of curiosity, if nothing else. So now let's go to the episode. The episode we're discussing today, as we said, is I'm Back at Camp with Josh. It aired on February 1st, 2016. It was written by Jack Dolgen and directed by Michael Schultz. And the IMDb synopsis says, When Rebecca finds out that Josh is volunteering at a summer camp, she takes along hoping to rekindle their teenage romance. Meanwhile, Heather becomes serious about Greg, and Daryl hosts an expensive party for Josh's friends. As always, there's a spoiler warning. We could discuss anything that's happened in any of the episodes of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So when we first start out, we see Paula and Rebecca together sitting at Boba. And Paula kind of predicts their wedding. She jokes about Rebecca's parents sending out wedding invites for her and Josh. But she actually says Mr. and Mrs. Bunch request the honor of your presence at the wedding of their daughter, Rebecca Nora Bunch, and Joshua Felix Chan. Uh, And of course, they're not really Mr. and Mrs. They're actually divorced. So a little bit of a slip there. Paula also predicts breaking into Josh's house, which happens in the very next episode. She half jokes that Rebecca should break in when Valencia is at yoga and just be in bed naked when Josh comes home. The most interesting thing about this, though, is that Paula goes on to say, I did this at least 10 times in the 90s and it worked every time. I got into a conversation about this with Donna Lynn on Twitter, but basically we want a young Paula spin-off web series because Paula's past always sounds super fascinating. Donna Lynn said her cousin Lauren Champlin could play young Paula because she looks really similar to her and apparently has a great voice. This is one of those ways that Paula and my friend Daisy were alike. I first met Daisy when she was in her 30s and she was similar to Paula as she is now, but she'd drop in things about her past where you were all like, wait, what? When she was in high school, Daisy did study abroad in England, became BFFs with her gay host brother, and went all punk rock, dyeing her hair and dressing so differently that her parents didn't recognize her. My theory with Paula is that she had a good friend or a group of friends who eventually had a falling out of some kind, because you gotta think that she had friends that meant something before Rebecca, yet they don't seem to be around now. Rebecca talks about how camp was like Cupid's arrow went straight through our hearts, and a second later, Josh is shooting a straw over to her table like an arrow. Nice transition there. We learn that Josh volunteers at a program for disadvantaged kids, and they were just staying overnight in a park. It wasn't actually real camp at all. Yet, Rebecca creates this narrative where that's how we remember the episode, too. I love how Paula adds a question mark to Valencia's name when she asks Josh about her. You and Valencia? She's a seasoned pro, makes it sound like she's only vaguely familiar with Valencia when Paula's already been messing with her yoga schedules. Paula also comments all those underprivileged whatever they are's, and it really makes me think about how much she's changed from here to the end of the show when she threatens to leave her job if, if they don't implement pro bono work for the jail. It's just a real shift in priorities for her. 
When Josh is heading out, he says, got a jet to the girls at Boba, which now makes me laugh so much since it's literally in the lyrics of Greg's song in season four, I hate everything but you. He says, just for a moment, I forget how much I hate it when people say, got a jet. And more than one person says it in this episode, but you know, Josh saying it has probably got to really get to him. So then we see Josh and Valencia having a little discussion about, uh, quote unquote, camp at their apartment. And after that, Rebecca goes to the camp director, essentially, and tries to get in on this whole experience. She says she did a female empowerment program at her high school that got girls on the pill. And that one actually sounds like it was a lot more successful than what happens here. I wonder if that was before she met Josh at camp when she was 16, and if she was at all inspired by her mother, since we know from the first episode that Rebecca's mother was in favor of abortion for young girls who got pregnant, and Naomi had career plans that were derailed by her own pregnancy with Rebecca. So you can see why they might be a pro-pill in that household. We also see in this scene Rebecca throwing money at problems, which of course is a pattern of hers. If you look at all areas of life, you can see where she's hurting in the family and parental department, the mental health zone, the relationship experiences. But when it comes to finances, she's not good with managing them, yet she has more than she needs because she's bringing home a high income. Which only speaks to how much lawyers must make, at least in this fictional universe, because in the previous episode, Daryl reveals that Rebecca said she'd work for cheap. But Rebecca takes one of the only things she's got going for her and throws it at problems to get what she wants. This in itself doesn't have to be a terrible thing. If money is where you're luckier than most, you can try to use that to solve the issues in other areas of your life. You can travel to boost your overall happiness level or meet someone new. You can more easily participate in a range of activities if you're trying to find a boyfriend or new group of friends. You can invest in your career or changing careers if you've got funds. It's just that Rebecca's trying to manufacture a moment so hard that she ends up putting her own financial future at risk, as we see later on when she runs out of money. Ultimately, it only makes sense to use one area of life to bolster another to the point that it doesn't deplete your own self-care. In the next scene, we see Greg and Heather lying in bed together. I'm not sure if I love Heather being willing to blow off her ritual of watching Empire with her friends when Greg asks to see a movie. He even says he doesn't want her to do that. But now that she, quote, likes him a lot, she's willing to bail on her original plans. I'm assuming this is more of a one-time thing, but we don't see enough between them to really know. If Rebecca was in an arc like this, it would have played out like a red flag or bad sign. Sure, Rebecca's got a lot more obsessive tendencies, but I'm still not sure if there should be a double standard. Heather's definitely still young and acting like a stereotypical college student here. At the same time, she has the ability to be very direct and clear about her feelings, and Greg reacts pretty immaturely, kind of making fun of her, which ultimately goes back to how self-deprecating he can be. He seems appalled by the idea of Heather not seeing other people, and yet, come on, was Greg really seeing other people? I think not. I think he just wasn't ready for a commitment, at least not to Heather. And despite Greg's childhood trauma affecting this, as the episode discusses later, Heather was the one to pursue him, always, and her feelings always did seem a little bit stronger to me. She just always seemed a lot more sure. At home base, Greg tells the guys that he and Heather are too different. She likes Chuck Palahniuk, the author of the book Fight Club. So let's talk about that a little bit, because there's some interesting things here. I've seen the movie, never read the book, 
but the author describes his style as transgressive fiction, which is a genre of literature that focuses on characters who feel confined by the norms and expectations of society and who break free of these confines in unusual or illicit ways. That's pretty perfect for Heather. Hector and White Josh tell Greg that he's making up problems as excuses to break up with Heather and that he doesn't want to commit because he's afraid she'll leave him, which is what he perceived happened with his mom when she divorced Marco. Greg says, if the perfect girl walked in here right now and said, Greg, I like you, I would be into it. Totally. However, we see later in the episode that he responds the same way to Ashley Pratt, who he built up in his head since kindergarten. Yet we know from a few episodes later, he doesn't feel for Heather what he eventually ends up feeling for Rebecca. So to some extent, it can't just be the childhood trauma in the case of Heather, right? Even though she's great, there's something that doesn't feel as right as it does with Rebecca? Maybe? It's also really funny to see Hector giving Greg romantic advice about Heather. Because he comes to home base where Heather starts working and she was dating Greg, Hector has to have run into her pretty early on, despite missing the party bus last episode. Hector and Wajo get a little more insightful and thoughtful here, especially compared to how they were in episode two. Hector says he's been watching The View lately, and both he and Wajo have psychological analysis on why Greg won't commit. Hector tells Wajo he appreciated his insight. You can see the writers starting to develop them more as characters in this episode, especially with the why Joe reveal we get at the end. In our next scene, Josh and Rebecca are getting off the buses, and Rebecca's got a red t-shirt on, similar to the one she wore to camp at 16, but without the parrot. Josh and the kids all have official camp t-shirts on, though, so it's clear that Rebecca is the sore thumb, the odd one out. We, of course, see this played out infamously uh, much later on in season two with the girl group episode where they all have printed t-shirts and Paula has the handwritten one. More subtly, that, that happens here with Rebecca. She's not official like they are. Their t-shirts say 2015 counselor or 2015 camper, so this establishes a timeline. But the episode aired in 2016, so at this moment, the CXG timeline seems a little behind. There's kind of a debate over it being 2015 or 2016 when you hear the creators talk about it in interviews. I know one of them said that even though like the part that aired in 2015 took place in 2016, but then there's also the possibility that it really did take place in 2015. There's a little bit of a debate because Alina and Rachel don't necessarily agree on the timeline and one prefers having a timeline and the other doesn't want to stick to that as much. Uh, but I think when we see this in the episode, that does kind of establish something. You know, okay, it's 2015 if it says that on their shirts. We also see in this scene Nikki, who uh, needs Rebecca when they're playing elbow tag, is later her bunkmate in jail. Which, if you read the Reddit, uh, you've probably seen a bunch already. But if you're only listening to podcasts and you're not involved in fandom, maybe that's something you had not noticed yet. But this is the same actress and the same character. Speaking of names, one of the girls at camp is actually named... Tanya. One of the girls at camp talks about how she texted and snapchatted a guy and never heard back from him. Next thing I know, he's on a water slide with some skank and he tagged me in the picture, she says. We know that Nathaniel later does a version of this at Raging Waters with Mona just to piss off Rebecca, but not sure if they had conceived in Nathaniel's character at this point. I'm wondering if this was at all even subconscious foreshadowing to what might possibly happen with Rebecca. 
except that originally perhaps it was supposed to be a different guy. Maybe Josh would have done that to Rebecca if things had played out differently and Santino Fontana hadn't left when he did, things like that. I'm always interested in how stories take shape and how they change and evolve over time. Maybe it was retconned and they decided to take that and have Nathaniel do it, making this foreshadowing after the fact. And then Rebecca jumps in at camp and advises the girls not to focus on men. She's trying so hard to be the right kind of woman, a strong, capable, smart feminist who doesn't rely on men. But in the moment, it's hard to pull that off because it's not representative of the range of feelings she's actually experiencing. Meanwhile, it totally makes sense that Josh is taking selfies of himself with everyone. He's going around the picnic table and holding his phone up to each and every camper. When Rebecca comes to sit next to him, she uses statistics on which types of photos are most well-liked to convince Josh that sunset photos are a good sell. I love the exchange where she says they used an algorithm and Josh is all like, oh no, <laughs> what word do you think Josh was thinking of instead? She does a nice job teasing him and making it a competition for Instagram likes. They have some good banter there. The guys, meanwhile, have agreed to watch the fight at Daryl's place. And Daryl has now invited, or rather purchased, some women to join them at the party. And we see that Ashley Pratt, an actress in L.A., who Greg has been in love with since kindergarten, has shown up at the party. We learn that Ashley punched Hector when he offered her pot to go to a party in high school. Now this is funny because clearly this is not the first time Hector ended up with one of Greg's girls. You know, we see that he took a chance with Ashley and we know that later Hector ends up with Heather. We also learn that Ashley has a crush on Josh Chan and has ever since high school. Ashley doesn't even recognize Greg, which really pisses him off and you can see him just trying to hold it together and not yell at her um but she tells greg you have a homeschooled look which mirrors valencia looking at rebecca in episode two and asking josh why are you talking to a homeless we also learn that greg was debate champion no surprise there he was on the math team he was student body treasurer even though ashley doesn't remember him she likes him because he's funny she asks if he was funny before, and Greg says he was hilarious, he just never said the jokes out loud. I'm guessing he was probably too nervous talking to girls back then. Next, we cut to Rebecca outside at camp, and we see she's got bites all over her, and find out that Paula packed bug spray for Rebecca, which is another mom thing. Rebecca wants to keep her plans with Josh so badly she's literally willing to risk her health and possibly her life when she finds out she's allergic to mosquito bites. She goes into anaphylactic shock. But eventually, Rebecca gets Josh alone on top of Blowy Point, and she takes a risk and reads her letter to him that she wrote when she was 16. And Josh's response to Rebecca's letter parallels Greg's immature response to Heather, discounting both girls' feelings. Josh reminds Rebecca that she used to be so dramatic and weird. Rebecca says, I'm so glad I'm not like that anymore. She feels like she can't be herself or open up and be vulnerable and honest because Josh and others would judge her or not understand. Back at Daryl's party, Greg comments to Ashley on how she's an actress and started to say, I googled that, but corrects himself and says, I read about that in the student newsletter. It's a perfect example of how everyone in today's society, not just Rebecca or people who have borderline, can engage in behavior that some might deem stalking or stalkerish. 
I don't think it's a problem that Greg Googled her, but she might find it a little off-putting if she didn't want him probing into her life. We also learn later in the episode that Greg drunk Googled Zeke, the other guy Heather was dating. The larger point here is that in some ways, everybody's like Rebecca Bunch at times. It's practically part of being human. So back at camp, we're inside, and the second time Rebecca gets hit with an arrow in this episode, it's a tampon thrown by one of the girls at camp after she starts giving the female empowerment lecture. But we learn that the girls at camp have such low standards for guys. They're upset when a guy sends a dirty pic and a W-Y-D instead of a word, but would accept a cute emoji and come over. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's super common nowadays. We'll talk more about Put Yourself First and the other songs in the music notes part of the episode, but after the girls try to empower Rebecca and she ends up talking to Josh again up on the hill on the big rock, Josh tells her that he pulled her letter out of the trash and read the whole thing and it meant a whole lot to him. There's some great lines she said, you're my hero, I believe in you, there's nothing you can't do, you make a difference in the world, and you make all the difference in the world to me. And this is exactly counter to Valencia again. The difference really crystallizes for Josh here. Earlier in the episode, he had said to Valencia, it's, sometimes it feels like you don't believe in me, or even understand me. And so when he's talking to Rebecca about this, he, he says, no one has ever said anything like that about me. He also tells her, you never tried to change me. That means so much. You have no idea. And he kisses Rebecca on the cheek. This is such a great moment in a lot of ways because we've been waiting for it for so long and we know how much it means to Rebecca as well. I love that the girls spied on them and got invested and empathetic. They think Josh should have kissed her on the lips. Rebecca says she's not thirsty, though. She's quenched. I know this feeling. On a different level, it's perhaps comparable to the girls settling for emojis, just a lot sweeter and more romantic. Rebecca only gets love kernels, remember? This, to her, is more than she's ever gotten in life, with the possible exception of Robert promising to leave his wife for her. Josh genuinely bonding with her, appreciating her words, getting sentimental enough to ask to keep the letter. It's validation, but it's also reciprocal not just in her head, not just something Rebecca imagined and hoped for. Rebecca is closer to 30 here, she's more than midway through her 20s, and she never seems to have had a proper boyfriend other than Josh for a month or two tops when they were 16. She deserves a lot more than a cheek kiss from the right person, which is not necessarily Josh, but to her this is better than anything she's ever known. This is a big reason why so many of us root for Rebecca. We can see how toxic Josh and Valencia are together, how they're just wasting their time at this point and not growing together. The writers and directors do a good job, especially in these early episodes, of showing the connection that Josh and Rebecca have with each other. There's an interesting sidelight to this, however. Over and over, we're showing that Josh falls for Rebecca, at least in part because of the way she views him. It feeds back into his own, not just ego, but his own insecurities, doubts, identity issues. Josh loves Rebecca in part because of the way she makes him feel about himself. And to some extent, this is helpful and supportive to have in a healthy relationship, but taken too far, and the partner, the other person, just becomes a mirror that you can check in with to make sure you're still looking good. It's a really fine line. One of the most critical junctures in my relationships happened in part because of the way I viewed him by the end. 
I knew all of my Josh Chan, his smarts, nerdiness, funny quips, and sense of humor, but also his tendency to get defensive, lie, or put up walls when confronted. I knew his tendency for secrets and decisions that were different from ones I would have made if it were 100% up to me, and he was hiding a lot of that from literally everyone else. I still supported him, loved him, was willing to smooth things over for him at the time, but he couldn't stand to see himself the way he really was, good, bad, and everything in between, and therefore couldn't appreciate the value in being loved for who you are. It was like that was the last thing he wanted, even from someone he had feelings for. He'd rather grab onto the very next person he met who was willing to buy into his false narrative. So this is a key thing, Josh latching on to how Rebecca views him and how that makes him feel. White Josh and Daryl have this really sweet conversation after the party. They have great chemistry together, despite neither of them being on the LGBTQ spectrum in real life as far as we know. Vinny too did a fantastic job playing Josh Chan. I had no idea he was gay for years until I actually got on social media for the show. Selling a sexuality that's not your own brings a different kind of challenge, and these actors got it right. I'm pretty sure the first time I saw this episode, White Josh's cheek kiss came as a complete surprise, and I typically have decent gaydar. It was a fantastic twist. It gave both characters more depth and nuance and advanced the plot in a natural way. Oh, and by the way, this is the other place where someone says, got a jet. It's White Josh as he's leaving Daryl's place. So in this episode, we learned that Greg gets skittish when Ashley says she could see herself settling down with him. And then we get this scene in the park with Greg and Heather. There's a nice little line they got in there. Greg says, my health insurance doesn't cover therapy, so I'm stuck with this, meaning the book Commitment for Idiots, which is a really good point because in so many cases, health insurance doesn't cover therapy or people don't even have health insurance or it covers therapy, but they still can't afford it. Um, so yeah, really good point there. But Greg uses the book for what it's worth and he admits that he gets nervous the other person will bail. It seems like he's trying commitment with Heather because he wants to break his pattern and recognizes it as an issue. But it's interesting that he picked Heather over Ashley. Greg saw Ashley as his perfect woman since kindergarten and seemed to feel the same way talking to her as an adult until she said she could see herself settling down with him. He obviously did have some hidden invested feelings towards Heather if he drunk Googled Zeke. But he also Googled Ashley and knew quite a bit about her. You'd think he would have been happy to have either woman commit to him, but instead Greg just got skeptical because he didn't think someone like Heather or Ashley would really like him that way. Still, how much can Greg really like Heather if he agonizes over Rebecca not much later? He may feel Heather is less likely to leave him than Ashley, so perhaps committing to her is less scary. Perhaps he stops valuing girls when they choose to commit to him because he doesn't think much of himself. Maybe he thinks the only girls worth chasing are the ones who continue to reject him. So as the episode wraps up, we see Rebecca talking to Paula in the office. She says, they say you can't go back in time, but they are dumb because you totally can. And that seems like a forerunner to the line from the We'll Never Have Problems Again song. They say obsession biologically lasts four years at most, but science doesn't apply to us. In both cases, you see that she's talking about how they say or the general wisdom is, but she's going to circumvent that and not believe it. It's also so cute when both Rebecca and Daryl are waiting to hear what a kiss on the cheek means. And then Paula goes, sometimes it means everything. 
I love this. This was such a sweet moment to end the episode on. And we don't often get to see them uh, left with hope at the end and a little bit of happiness to hold on to. So even though there will be problems down the road, it's it's really nice to have this this positive episode sandwiched in here. Before we get on to the other segments, if you'd like to support the podcast, feel free to donate as little as $2 on Patreon under Team West Covina. There'll be links in the show notes. It really helps cover the yearly hosting costs. Just to host the episodes for a year costs over $100 actually. So to break even on that sort of thing would be great. If anyone's able to rate and review the podcast, that would be a huge help towards growing the audience and helping it rank higher in search results. And thank you to those who have reviewed so far. I did see a couple nice reviews from a while back that I don't think I'd even seen before since there's so many different podcast platforms. So thank you. So our first segment is Who Done It, which is how many times Rebecca initiates plans to end up with Josh and how many times Paula helps her end up with Josh by throwing an idea out there. It's actually Paula who interjects that Rebecca could help out at camp. This is something I would have expected to be Rebecca's idea because camp is so personal and idealized for her. But upon rewatch, Paula is the one who snatches that opportunity. When the camp administrator says they don't need any more counselors or people participating in camp, they need money. Rebecca contributes an overly generous donation, so they make an exception and let her come. So she really is the one to make that part happen. And then the third thing is Rebecca reads the letter to Josh, which is really, you know, putting one foot forward there. So in this episode, Rebecca instigated twice and Paula instigated once. And the total so far is Rebecca has instigated plans to end up with Josh 13 times and Paula has had ideas eight times. Our Ring of Fire segment, which talks about the fire reference in each episode, uh, was very easy to find this time, actually. Rebecca was talking about the letter she wrote to Josh when she was 16. She tells Paula, I wanted to burn it, but I didn't do that either, so that's why it's a little scorched. And also we see her tendency to burn things, particularly anything involving ex-boyfriends, before we're shown examples of how this escalates. For our Suicide Watch segment, there was really nothing that I saw other than Rebecca's willingness to risk death for the sake of Chan, if we're assuming that her allergic reaction would have gone that far. Our Booze Clues segment, we do see Greg drinking in this episode, but really for the most part, he doesn't seem to be drinking any more than the average person, so there's nothing that would have maybe tipped us off. Greg's drinking a beer at Daryl's house, but so is everyone, except for Daryl, who appears to be having white wine or something like that. Greg's probably on at least his second beer by the time the girls show up, and he has what looks like white wine with Ashley on the couch, but he'd asked her to go get a wine cooler, so maybe it's that. In our Nailed It segment, Rebecca's wearing no nail polish the entire episode, which doesn't surprise me since she's emulating her 16-year-old self from camp. Our Music Notes segment discusses the song parodies and what they were based on or inspired by. Having a few people over, we see Daryl perform all by himself, and this is based off EDM, which is electronic dance music or club music. Adam Schlesinger said he was first thinking about or inspired by Montel Jordan's song, This Is How We Do It. The first pitch for the title was This Is How We Party, but apparently there's another song like that. So Put Yourself First, it's a really fantastic song. This one doesn't get enough attention, most likely because one of our main characters doesn't sing it, but the lyrics and the music parody are on point. 
great lines like, if I put myself first for him, then by definition, aren't I putting myself second? And don't think about it too hard, too, too hard. Like Rebecca spouting female empowerment rhetoric when she doesn't actually feel it or act on it, the underprivileged girls are acting on the surface like they're doing all this beauty stuff for themselves as self-care or a confidence boost, yet ultimately the goal comes back to getting the guy. I forgot about the mustache-toting photographer with the male gaze shirt. That's a nice touch. It's like they can't see themselves as beautiful without considering how guys might perceive them. And Rachel on the song commentary for Put Yourself First says, if you don't care about impressing a man, who are you putting those high heels on for? Who are you putting makeup on for? And she says that don't think about it too hard, too, too hard became a motto for the crew. It's generally agreed upon that Put Yourself First was inspired by Fifth Harmony's Worth It and Boss. Boss has the five girls from Fifth Harmony in all white outfits and all black outfits, and they switch between them. Whereas in Put Yourself First, they switch between shots of the girls in two different sets of outfits as well. There's similar moves, choreography, and look in both songs. In Boss, they do runway or photo shoot type shots as well, just like in Put Yourself First. The girls they cast are a variety of ethnicities, like in Fifth Harmony. And the message of Worth It is similar to what Put Yourself First parodies. Our third song of the episode is Dear Joshua Felix Chan, and Rachel says that they use the music from this one a lot in the score. She also says the music is childlike, and Rebecca and Josh are both stunted children. There's not much on this one that I found compelling for the inspiration. If anybody has something to contribute, feel free to send in. There are letter songs in various musicals, but nothing that seemed directly parodied that I've found so far, nothing that really convinced me. I've also found more song references since the early podcast episodes, so I wanted to tack on a few more from songs that we'd already talked about. So Settle For Me from I'm Going On A Date With Josh's Friend. I don't know how I didn't think of it, but Cole Porter's You Are The Top has that same self-deprecating feel with lines like, I'm a worthless check, a total wreck, a flop, but if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top. So that fits Settle For Me really well. And I had not seen the Mickey Mouse Club theme song, but the background of it, the rhythm and structure, all fits I Have Friends from I Hope Josh Comes to My Party. And that one I got from multiple fans mentioning it. I did not have cable in the 90s, and so I had never seen that, didn't even realize that that was a thing, but it fits really well. Anna Canon, sorry if I'm mispronouncing names, just made a YouTube video on some of the song references and noted that his status is preferred parodies Jessica Rabbit singing Why Don't You Do Right in the Who Framed Roger Rabbit movie. I was a little young for that when it came out and had never seen it, but this is pretty spot on. It takes place in a jazz club where she's singing and seducing men. They both have the red dress, red hair. They even style Paula's hair just like hers in the scene, with one side pinned back and the other doing a little wave or flip around the right side of her face. The great addition, though, is that Paula's a curvy middle-aged woman and mom as opposed to the typical Jessica Rabbit type, and yet she pulls it off just as well. Definitely a new take on that. There are links to all of the musical inspirations in the show notes organized by episode, so if you want to see the visuals or hear specific comparisons for yourself, they're there. So now let's take a look at some of the themes from this episode. None of the women in this episode are putting themselves first for real. We see Rebecca put herself last for Josh, ignoring her allergic reaction to the point that she passes out. Both she and the younger girls are lying to themselves about their empowerment because they know that's how society would want them to be, and they don't want to come off as desperate or losers. 
Being in a situation where guys always have the upper hand makes them feel powerless, the opposite of empowerment. Meanwhile, Heather offers to ditch her friends to hang with Greg, only to get rebuffed and devalued. Even Ashley Pratt vocally regrets talking to jerks and dumb jocks in high school and reflects that she should have been talking with guys like Greg instead. She says Greg is down-to-earth compared to the douchebags in L.A. And yet, while she's open about this and appreciative of him, Greg, the supposed nice guy, ends up backing the hell off as soon as Ashley sounds like she could get serious with him. It's amazing how many underdogs or nerdy guys pine after certain girls and then wildly backtrack on commitment when they actually capture their interest. When Ashley says she'd really like to see him again, Greg replies, me too, that would be great. So he likes her and is open to it, until she sounds like she's considering him as a long-term prospect. So basically, he got to kiss her, and now he's done? Ashley's attempting to make better choices, and her better choice just stomps all over that notion. It's a lot harder to put yourself first than it looks. The second theme is feeling like you can't be yourself or accepted for who you are, and deciding whether or not to show the world that anyway. Rebecca showing Josh that letter was like letting someone enter her inner world of musical romances. She views herself singing the letter to him, and the things she says in it are not things she normally says out loud. So it really hurts when he laughs and doesn't get it, and still sees her 16-year-old self the way he always did, dramatic and weird. Part of the reason Rebecca tries to pass herself off as a woman embroiled in female empowerment is because it's a decoy to distract others from her true state of mind. She doesn't expect to be accepted for who she actually is, but at the same time yearns to share the letter with Josh because it's so important and personal to her. Josh feels like Valencia isn't accepting him as he is, that she constantly tries to change him or angle for him to change himself. He doesn't feel valued, supported, or understood either until Bex comes along. It's not always easy for Josh to stand up to V, but not only does he go to camp, by the end he tells her he's going back every year. Heather is comfortable directly expressing her thoughts and feelings, and she tries to be very clear with Greg, who balks. She puts herself out there, but this causes Greg to backtrack some. Heather was very much herself, and yet it takes a lot of soul-searching before Greg can accept that. Meanwhile, Greg doesn't expect for any girl to accept him for who he is. Deep down, he fears they'll leave him eventually. Rather than play that role, he tries to be the one to end the relationship first. And the third theme is recreating or repeating the past. Rebecca's trying to recreate the past with Josh at camp. Greg is repeating childhood patterns from the past within his relationships. Then we have some poll results from podcast episode 11, which was the one with Harrison from Bagels After Midnight. The question was, where would you take friends on a group hang? 0% said Hispanic restaurant, 20% said sad movie, 40% said beach, and 40% said art museum. We have a new poll question this time, and feel free to vote on Team West Covina's Twitter. If young Paula's life was turned into a web series, which memory would you most like to see? And yes, these are all referenced on the show. Breaking in and bed bombing, which is basically what she talked about in this episode, where she'd break into a random guy's house, get into bed naked, and wait, wait for them to come home. Or would you like to see her high school relationship with Jeff? or period sex at a party, which she references in the third episode that actually happened to her when she was younger. The podcast question this time is, what's your take on Greg's feelings for Heather and Ashley, and how that ties in with the feelings he later has for Rebecca? Why does he choose Heather over Ashley, who he's been pining for since kindergarten? 
You can reach out to the podcast or start discussions on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under Team West Covina. You can also email me at paisley.podcasts at gmail.com. If you don't plan to join us for a Copian's Corner where we discuss how we personally related to the episode, thanks for listening. So welcome to a Copian's Corner. It's been a while. Just a little update first. I actually found a new therapist. For those of you who listened to episodes from a year ago, you know that I stopped going after a few sessions last year because we both agreed she didn't have much to offer me by way of suggestions or techniques. And there were some other problems too that made things worse and not better. But I have new insurance now, which means I have a wider pool to choose from, whereas last year there was literally only one that could take me. I've only had a couple sessions, but I feel a lot better about my new therapist, and she actually asked if she could listen to the podcast if I was comfortable with it to get to know me better. I'm curious what you guys think about that, but regardless, it's nice to think that she'd be willing to put in time off the clock to help our sessions. I like that she uses CBT and narrative therapy. Just a little sidelight comment here. The end of Rebecca's letter where she says, you make a difference in the world and you make all the difference in the world to me. It reminded me so much of a letter I wrote to a well-known entertainer that I loved for years and years before we actually got to know each other. I gave it to him at the stage door and remember ending it, I'm not in your life, but you're in mine and I'm better because of it. And he actually emailed me after that and that's how we started to get to know each other. It's really nice to see old fashioned letters having an impact. So most of what I'm going to talk about on Acopian's Corner today is the next part of the journal entry we're picking up from where we left off last time. It was 4th of July weekend a number of years ago. My Josh Chan, Cheetah, and I were starting to have awkward interactions as our feelings started to blossom. If you missed the first part of this, it's on Team West Covina, episode 11. Just as a reminder, our friend group had spent the day at Six Flags, and then afterwards I accidentally locked myself out of my car, and Cheetah had to drive me back and forth in the middle of the night. And when I stayed over at his place, he gave me a hug before bed, but then tripped, and we both fell over onto the air mattress, which caused us to have a moment. I felt embarrassed the next morning and fled. So here's the next part of that journal entry. Cheetah got up a half hour before catnip and promptly texted me. Did you head home? I said, yeah, tried not to wake anyone. Sorry, let me know once you guys have a time frame. Had to pick up a few things over here. Oh yeah, I could do nonchalant. We were supposed to all hang out as a group, but then Beau wanted to go to a strip club because he'd never been. And that's not my scene at all, so I bowed out, and she'd bowed out too. Although I was still supposed to spend the next night at their place, as our long weekend plans continued. Around 8.30 on Friday night... I texted Catnip to see what was up, since I hadn't heard from her all day and wasn't sure when I should head back over to their place. The rest of the group had filled their day with all sorts of plans and were still in another state nearby. That's when Catnip said it. She texted me, Bug cheated a hangout, lol. Lotus encouraged me to actually do it. I wouldn't have seriously considered it if she hadn't pushed for me to take the opportunity, but when I texted Cheetah, it only took one minute for him to respond. Cheetah said, I'm mostly awake, what you want to do, food? We decided to go to Denny's. And just like that, I had a fake date with Cheetah. At least that's what it felt like after the night before. We were seated in a booth by the window and sat across from each other. Even though we can normally talk so easily, I worried that the second I got a chance to prove myself, I'd freeze up and become lame boring girl who couldn't actually follow through in a date-like setting. I asked about his Doctor Who time travel t-shirt, which I'd never seen him wear before. Because we were all nerds, I told him about the spoof Lotus and I came up with over the breakfast table. It all started with, what if our little dog were Doctor Who? He'd have the bow tie, 
His crate would be his time travel machine painted TARDIS blue. We could call the TV show Dr. Rue. And the theme song would be the same, except sung in Rue's. Roo, 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 roo. Lotus and I had talked about it being a kid's cartoon TV show that all takes place in one small house, and they explore different rooms as if they were realms. All the creatures would be made out of household appliances. The Daleks would be cheese graters with egg beaters for arms, not too different from what they already are. The Cybermen would be children's robots. The Centaurans would be actual potatoes. Cheetah laughed. The Doctor's companion could be a different kind of animal every time. This season, it's an iguana. Our cat could be the master. We could bleach his fur. And when the Doctor transformed, he'd come back as a different breed of dog every time? Cheetah cut in. Exactly, I exclaimed, pleased that he'd guessed. I love that we can talk about fandom stuff, and I don't really worry that he's going to think I'm stupid. Cheetah held up the Denny's menu. The people on the cover look like us, he said. I actually have a sundress like that, I told him, and he laughed. I don't remember what else we talked about. A lot happened that weekend, but we never had any awkward silences, thank goodness. He finished all he could of his food and started playing with it instead, flattening out the hash browns nice and neatly. As soon as he was done, I picked up my fork, reached across the table, and slashed through them. He cracked up laughing, surprised, and fixed them again. I repeated my action and then made a round hole in the center of them. It's a hash brown volcano, Cheetah teased. Right? Are you sure you're not going to eat anymore? I'm sure. Okay, then. I grabbed the pepper, unscrewed it, and dumped a whole bunch in the hole. As a finishing touch, I placed a grape in the center. He laughed some more and took a picture of it on his phone. You're crazy. I drove us back to his place, and we ended up with some downtime before Lissa arrived, which would be late at night after her shift. Cheetah and I ended up sitting next to each other on the couch, arms and shoulders touching, flipping channels until we got to some old friends reruns. Being alone with a boy, watching television, and talking for hours after having gone out to eat? It's silly, but I've never had anything that normal with a boy I liked. Never. It might have been a fake date, but I loved every second of it. Cheetah and I felt pretty compatible under different circumstances. We talked about everything, while pausing occasionally to catch different scenes of the show. Cheetah has a good friend, Sam, who's a girl, that he's known longer than he's known catnip. She lives across the country. He's not allowed to talk about relationship stuff or complain about catnip to Sam, because catnip monitors their IMs, even though Sam has a boyfriend now. So does catnip let you read all her conversations as well, then, I ask? No, Cheetah guffaws, rolling his eyes. She would never let me read any of her stuff. Anyway... I don't really have anyone to talk to about catnip and was kind of wondering if you could be that person, Cheetah confided. Cheetah also badgered me pretty hard about my own situations, and we talked a lot about our past relationships. He asked me questions that were far more open and revealing than I expected. To me, it felt like it was starting to blur the lines between friendship and attraction, like he was testing the waters or something. As far as sex goes, let's just say I'm right with you on the twice-a-year thing, Cheetah admitted when we were sitting together on the couch. I know, I said sympathetically. I'm sorry. We've only ever tried a couple times throughout the course of our entire relationship, Cheetah told me candidly. Cheetah wanted to know how old I was during my first time with a guy, and if it really was Mr. Big, which was my code name for the well-known entertainer I mentioned earlier. If I didn't want to share the entertainer's identity, I called him Big or Mr. Big, a reference to Carrie's infamous partner from Sex and the City. I said yes, I'd wanted Big to be my first time for seven years before we actually got together. Cheetah talked about his first time, and we both seemed to have had the same amount of partners. 
If you looked up the word relationships in my own personal dictionary, you'd just see a picture of an obstacle course underneath it, I told Cheetah, and he laughed, but sympathetically. He asked about my most embarrassing moment in a relationship, which was something I'd only ever told Daisy and Lotus. After the Friends Marathon was over, Cheetah flipped channels and landed on Star Trek Next Generation. One of the things he told me about the show was that so-and-so has sexual tension with so-and-so, and so-and-so has sexual tension with so-and-so. It was really hard not to jump out and shout, White Elephant! He was looking through his wallet and showed me his old ID from when he was only 16 years old, which was sweet. Cheetah told me about his best time so far, which I guess unsurprisingly was not with catnip. That's the hottest thing I've experienced and probably the hottest thing I ever will experience, he said. And given the way our conversation wound, I think he meant because I'm never going to have sex again. I told you my best time, so what was your best time, Cheetah asked, looking at me expectantly. Holy crap, he wanted me to open my mouth and tell him in person? What? Just as I was running through my catalog of what I could possibly say, the doorbell rang. It was Lissa, finally arrived. Both our mouths dropped open and we made faces, sitting up straight instead of slouched together. Cheetah got up to answer the door, grumbling. That's not fair, he growled. I told you my best time, but I didn't get to hear your best time. Right before he opened the door to Lissa, he gave me the middle finger. Lissa came bounding in, full of energy and completely oblivious. Ten minutes later, Cheetah and I briefly went into the darkened kitchen for something, and while we were in there, I whispered, I feel like we didn't get to finish. He laughed and exclaimed in a hush, I know. Not long after, Catnip and Bo turned up. It must have been pretty late by that point. Bo apologized for loving the strip club so much that he didn't want to go home. He said it in his sweet little southern accent, too, which was admittedly hilarious. Somebody asked if his boyfriend knew he had gone to a strip club, and Bo went, No, he does not. That's something I'd like to keep to myself. <laughs> Catnip and Bo went to bed after that, her to her bedroom, and Bo to the guest room. Lissa, too, was exhausted. She crashed out on the short end of the sectional with a blanket and pillow, falling asleep while Cheetah and I were still talking and watching TV. Around four in the morning, Cheetah said he had to go to Walmart to pick up some cooking ingredients that Catnip needed him to get for the party the next day. Cheetah asked if I wanted to come with if I wasn't too tired. When we got up to leave, Lissa yelled at us in her sleep to keep it down. We glanced at each other, silently cracking up. Once we were in the car with Cheetah driving, he refocused the conversation back on sex. You're not getting out of this. What was your best time? I couldn't remember off the top of my head and told him I felt shy. Tell me, he insisted. I told you mine. I told him one that Big talks about a lot, and Cheetah laughed and said, That sounds like his favorite time, though, not yours. And, oh, I just remembered another. Cheetah snickered. That sounds like your favorite because you made that little noise. We had to get out and go into Walmart at that point. Cheetah was satisfied that I'd confessed. I loved doing something simple and domestic with him, wandering around Walmart and buying ingredients we had no idea how to use. Hardly anyone was in the store, and there were huge cardboard boxes scattered all over the place because they restock at night. I'm sure everybody thought we were a couple, because what guy and girl show up to Walmart at four in the morning if they're not a couple? Sidelight, I totally sound like Rebecca saying, he thinks we're a couple, isn't that funny? We're not a couple, he thinks we're a couple. <laughs> this was well before the show had aired, so that's kind of funny. There was not enough stuff on that list. We were done in five or ten minutes tops. Before I knew it, the car was crawling back into the subdivision. But then, to my great surprise, Cheetah parked in visitor parking because we were still talking. 
Cheetah adjusted the back of his seat so it was practically, but not quite, horizontal, and I did the same. He was in the driver's seat and I on the passenger's side. We lied on our backs and turned our heads to look at each other, although eventually as the conversation evolved, I found myself on my side, curled up and facing him. It was early in the morning, so birds were singing, and the sky was just beginning to get light. Cheetah asked when I was seeing Big next. By this point, Big and I just had a casual relationship if neither of us were seeing anybody else exclusively, since he was long distance and I wasn't as enamored with him in the same way because of a couple issues we'd run into over the years. Uh, soon, actually. When? You want to know the exact days? I asked. He nodded. It's next Friday and Saturday. I'm going to text you in 12 days and ask if this weekend or next weekend was better, Cheetah said. He continued to lament that he and Catnip didn't have a full-fledged relationship. She'd made it sound like it would get better once they had their own place and were living together, but it didn't and now he felt stuck. Even when I get the physical release, it's all mechanics, he said. I'm not getting the emotional release at all. I want the person I'm with to desire me and she doesn't desire any of it. I know it's not going to change. She's never going to start liking it. I was blown away by how much Cheetah shared with me, stuff that he's never told a soul before. We started to realize we were really compatible in very specific, detailed ways as we talked about what we were both looking for. Cheetah had all these ideas that he wanted to enact with a partner, but Katnip wasn't into any of them, and they always seemed to disagree or want different things in many areas of life. Eventually, daylight streamed into the car and one or two neighbors walked past, but we sure as heck did not go back to the house. At one point during some banter, Cheetah blurted out, You're forbidden to be hot. I looked up at him, surprised. Why? I demanded. He shot a dark glance at me, warily. I don't want to say why, he half laughed, half growled in frustration. Okay, so I've got a question for you now, Cheetah said sternly. I hid my face in the seat, terrified of what he would ask. When we were talking about all the stuff we're looking for in a partner, were you ever picturing me doing those things with you? I inhaled a deep breath, still hiding my face. He'd admitted it, but the question he zinged at me was more direct. I didn't want to lie, though. It just wouldn't work, would make everything seem false and distorted. Maybe, I said hesitantly, feeling a rush of shyness. We stumbled through a couple other opaque statements or questions, but ceased to understand each other in our nervousness. I don't know what's going on, I squirmed. We were both being cagey. I'd known from the start that I would never admit feelings unless he did, wouldn't take them seriously as a real possibility. I'm confused. I thought you were talking about what you'd hoped for with other people, catnip, your past girlfriends. Yeah, I was trying to make it sound like it was other people, trying hard not to picture doing those things with you, Cheetah confessed. Wow, I breathed. And honestly, I just felt so freaking happy. Happier than I'd hardly ever been. I didn't know what the next step was, but just knowing without a doubt that Cheetah had feelings for me was such a blissful relief. We were finally both on the same page, after talking for more than 12 hours total. By this point, it was the day of the party. Cheetah instinctively reached out and rubbed my knee. I want this so bad, he said intensely. I don't think it can ever happen, though. I wasn't entirely surprised. It would be weird if his first reaction was to ditch his whole life. I wish I could touch you, but I can't, he said, looking constipated as he pulled back his hands. I was staring at you in a bikini pretty much the whole time we were at Six Flags, Cheetah said boldly. When you told me you had to go without underwear because of the locker mix-up, it got me all bothered. 
I'd felt kind of ignored all day, so this was news to me. And then there was that thing with the ladder, Cheetah added. I felt something when we fell down and were staring at each other. I know, right? I mean, what are the chances of something like that even happening? I chimed in. I never thought you'd actually like me that way, Cheetah confided. I'm so frustrated, I want to touch you. We were staring at each other, and his dark eyes meeting mine were captivating. He makes it so hard to look away. We talked about how, with one exception, I haven't had sex in three and a half years, so we're pretty much in the same boat. That made it so much harder. But I'm worried about my life falling apart, because I don't think I'd be able to afford living alone, and I don't want a roommate, Cheetah said baldly. I'm already making plans for how to get it, because I want to find some way to be with you. If I could, I'd be deliriously happy, Cheetah said candidly, and I beamed, reddening. Catnip's obsessed with you, you know, Cheetah said to me. She talks about you all the time. That's part of the reason it took me a while to realize that I liked you, too, because she always made you her thing. I grew a little braver, sighing. Can I just say, I know you spent a lot of time trying to convince Catnip to date you, but you don't have to convince me. I desire you. I looked up at him with earnest eyes. He groaned and squeezed my knee hard, his eyes never leaving my face. Cheetah told me that when he finally got together with Catnip, he never actually succeeded in convincing her with his words. After a year of trying to wear her down, and after she got dumped by a different guy, he just went for it and kissed her. So she went with it too. Oh, stupid boy, who must have thought he was so clever at the time. And now, here we are. This weekend is better, I exclaimed, in reference to his earlier question about the weekend of the party versus my weekend with Big. You can't say for sure. I'll text you after next weekend and find out, he chided. I felt like a part of him seriously wanted to know. I have to ask, is this more than just sexual for you? I queried Cheetah when it occurred to me. Yes, he admitted almost cheapishly. We talk really well together about anything. I never get to be an official girlfriend for some reason, I said. Any other male relationships I had were long distance, and I didn't get that title. If you could, do you see me as a girlfriend? I can't believe that you'd have trouble finding people that wanted you for their girlfriend. You would be the best girlfriend, Cheetah emoted, sincerely and enthusiastically. After a few moments of contemplation, he amended regretfully, The best girlfriend I can never have. So we'll end there for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.